Last week we left off in verse 15, and we will approach verse 16 today. And I'll remind you from time to time, if you don't know what we taught last week, you missed out, then you can always go back on Facebook and pull up that message and listen to the whole thing at your leisure. As God or Ahab is already dead, but the house of Ahab includes all of his descendants. And having received this command from God through the young prophet, Jehu has commanded all of those around him to not let one person escape Ramoth Gilead. That's where he was at the time. Not one person to leave Ramoth Gilead to run to Jezreel and tell Joram what was about to happen. In other words, he didn't want any spies, any double agents, any traitors, or we'd say double crossers, wouldn't we, to leave Ramoth Gilead. So there could be no other warning of this judgment than what God already gave. No last-minute preparations. Only swift judgment upon the house of Ahab. They've been warned before. In fact, God warned the children of Israel when they came out of that land of bondage in Egypt. And he gave them the commandments. And he said in so many words, if you'll do right, I'll take care of you. If you don't, I'm going to punish you. Bottom line, they were warned way back when. And they've been warned and warned again and warned again. They've seen the consequences of obeying God, and they've seen the consequences of disobeying God. So now, for all of those who have ignored God's word that says he will pour out his judgment upon the earth, for all those who've ignored the truth that all unbelievers will have their part in the lake of fire, there will also be no last-minute reprieve. You've been warned. They've been warned. And are being warned. That's what we're doing this morning. As we preach the truth from God's word, we're warning every person who will listen. But regardless of the warning, that day is going to come. It's going to come swiftly and without further warning, just like Jehu marching upon Jezreel without letting a single spy escape, Ramoth Gilead, to warn the people of this judgment. The Apostle Paul speaks of the warning men were being given back then and are being given today when we teach what he wrote. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, he said, he wrote, speaking about Christ, whom we preach, warning every man. And teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. That means complete. And in fact, in Christ Jesus, it will be perfect and without sin when that time comes. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now the extension of that truth that Paul declared is that those who are not presented perfect in Christ Jesus may not be presented perfect in Christ Jesus. If you're not trusting in him for salvation, then you're not perfect in him. You're not complete in him. 
you're trying to be complete in your own efforts, or perhaps you deny the whole truth of the gospel from beginning to end. But as silly as it sounds, many religious people in this world, and some who aren't so religious, will decide, I'm going to go to the same place that these Christians say they're going to because God's going to have mercy on me. His kindness toward us was shown through Jesus Christ at the cross. And that's where you have to go by faith to be saved. You can't go anywhere else. And that's the warning we give. And so Paul preached that warning, and there will be nobody who can say, well, I wasn't warned. I heard that gospel, and I didn't realize he was serious about it. I didn't realize that was true, or I didn't realize that was for me, or I thought I could put it off to another day. Even though they were warned through the preaching of the gospel, they'll be as those in Jezreel who don't believe Jehu's coming after them, or right then, or because of what they've done. Now let's see what happens when Jehu goes to do what God ordained, and without further warning to the house of Ahab. Verse 16, if you've just joined us, we're in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 16. And welcome to our online viewers as well. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram lay there, and Ahaziah king of Judah was come down to see Joram. And there stood a watchman on the tower... In Jezreel, And he spied the company of Jehu as he came, and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take an horseman, and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? Now this was not a chance meeting between Joram and Ahaziah. This was divinely ordained that they should be there at the same time that Jehu was arriving. And the word company used there in verse 17, the watchman said he spied a company. That's a multitude. That's an abundance. That doesn't mean company was coming to see him like we would say. And I'm sure the dust and the grass were being kicked up by the chariots and the horses and the sound of the horse hooves and the chariot wheels must have been furious. And sending a horseman out to see whether this company, this multitude, came in peace was customary. It was like sending an ambassador to a country to see if we're going to have war or not. We might fly one person over to some country who's said they want to have war and say, do you really want to do this? If you do, here's what's going to happen. And then if that ambassador comes back safely, he'll bring news that either that the, the country says, yes, we're going to war with the United States, or no, we don't want any part of that. Now, verse 18, So there went one on horseback to meet him, and said, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me, say, turn thee behind me, and the watchman told, saying, The messenger came to them, but he cometh not again. This horseman went out and asked Jehu 
whether his coming was peace or in Hebrew, shalom. But the kind of peace the horseman was talking about was different than the kind of peace for which Jehu was coming. Get that, because the word peace gets tossed around quite a bit, doesn't it? At different groups. The horseman wanted to know if Jehu meant to harm Joram and those in Jezreel or not. That's it. But the only peace Jezreel would really have would come when the house of Ahab, including Joram, was eliminated. And you'll see why if you don't already know. The, world, the word peace is used by the world in many ways, but rarely is it used scripturally. In fact, here are some examples for you of how worldly organizations define peace. A nonprofit group called Generations for Peace, now that's a that's a pretty cool sounding name, isn't it? We all want peace. Generations for Peace has as its mission statement the following, and I quote, to empower youth to lead and cascade sustainable change in communities experiencing conflict through world-class free education in conflict transformation and the use of sport, art, advocacy, dialogue, empowerment, and media for peace building. End quote. That sounds pretty gushy, doesn't it? Well, here's another one. This is from the preamble of the United Nations Charter. Now, everybody wants unity, don't they? Doesn't that sound wonderful that all nations would be unified? It says, We the peoples of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind and to reaffirm faith and fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom, and for these ends to practice tolerance, and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors and to unite our strength to maintain international peace and security to ensure by the acceptance of principles and the institution of methods that armed force shall not be used save in the common interest to employ international machinery for the promotion of the economic and social advancement of all, all people. And you're glad I'm through with that, aren't you? My goodness, what a mess. How would you ever make sense of that? But you know, there are a lot of words in there, buzzwords, that just sound wonderful, don't they? To the flesh. And very lastly and quickly, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary has as its first definition for the word peace, a state of tranquility and quiet. Now that's what my wife and I experienced yesterday when our grandkids got in the car with their mom and went home. It was one, we love those little ones, but we also love the peace. Brother Fulton, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? We just love it all. Now, all of those things I just read you about peace, 
may sound good and warm and fuzzy, but none of them include God. Not one of them. And furthermore, none of those definitions or the objectives of those definitions have ever come to pass in the form of permanent worldwide peace. They never have. And you know what? I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a preacher. They never will. The prophecy I do here is simply forth-telling what God's Word says. That's it. They never will. There is no promise man can make to his fellow man that will guarantee peace. None. If we see peace only as the absence of conflict, in other words, two brothers who aren't fist fighting at the time, we say, well, see there, they're getting along. No, they're not. They're just, they're worn out. They're tired of punching each other, maybe. But if we see it only as an absence of conflict with our fellow man, that's a shallow definition of peace, isn't it? How does a And our inability, by the way, to have peace stems from one thing, and that's sin. How does a broken man tell another broken man how to be whole by his own knowledge? You may say, well, doesn't the Bible tell us to seek peace? Absolutely. It certainly does. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 14. Psalm 34, 14 says, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. There it is. That's a commandment, isn't it? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. And his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, put it off, and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So what is the basis upon which mankind may hope for true Lasting peace. It's found in Luke chapter 2. It's found in many places, but in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, the Bible says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What did it say? Peace, goodwill toward men. Peace has its basis In the Savior who was born to us. Christ Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. In other words, peace was born unto us when Jesus was born unto us. And the Bible very specifically says that 
not only may peace come through this Savior, but peace must come through this Savior. There's not another way. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, if you ever throw that prepositional phrase away, through our Lord Jesus Christ, then it would just read, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, that's another word that gets tossed around, is the word faith. How many times have you heard somebody say, Just keep the faith in what? What are we? Our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. So if your faith is in your own ability, or if you say, well, I have faith in myself, well, that's a disappointment, isn't it? Because you're going to fail. We're given no other way to obtain this peace. Many have tried, and many will try, to have peace according to their own understanding of it. And that's what the world does. That's what this horseman understood is the world's understanding of peace. You're not coming to hurt us, are you, Jehu? And Jesus knew that the world would offer its own brand of peace. Did you know that? He knows all things. He knew the world would offer its own brand of peace. So he said in John chapter 14 and verse 27, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Did you hear that? He said, I'm leaving you my peace. And oh, no, no, no. My peace is not that peace the world gives you. The peace Jehu was talking about is not the one that the horseman was talking about. It's two different things. The horseman was sent out to see if Jehu came in the name of tranquility, in the name of an absence of conflict, in the name of the peace the world gives. And Jehu told this horseman, look in your text, turn thee behind me, there in verse 18. In the middle he says, what hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. Get behind me. Not in front of me. That's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21 through 23. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Where it reads, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples. That's who he's talking to. How that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him... Now, what did Jesus just say? He told us this is what he's going to do. And we know that that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he would, be, he would die on the cross. He'd lay down his life, shed his blood, be buried and raised again the third day for our justification. There it is. That was the way of peace. Now, listen to how Peter handled that. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. He should have fallen down and said, oh, Lord, thank you for doing it. We're going to be sad when you go. You're our friend. We've handled you. You're the word of life whom we've handled. But if you don't go to the cross, we'll never be saved. But he didn't. He rebuked Jesus, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, here's what Jesus did. He didn't say, You know, Peter, you have a point. No, 
He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Not Peter, Satan. Peter was a believer. Thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So what was the peace? Oh, this verse and our text connect very well. Peter thought he could bring peace by keeping Jesus, his friend and master, from going to the cross and dying. If we can just keep him from being killed, then that's a peaceful event, right? That's what he thought. But this was nothing more than Satan using Peter to try to stop one thing that would bring lasting peace to the world, to that hopeless and condemned mass of mankind who needed Jesus to go to the cross and die for us. For all of those Old Testament saints who had shed the blood of lamb after lamb, sacrifice after sacrifice, none of which could take away sins, but would point toward the one who could right here. He needed to die for them. He needed to die for the whole world that we would have the opportunity to know God's peace. In our text, Jehu was on a righteous mission, wasn't he? Just like Jesus was. Jehu was on a righteous mission, one that was ordered by the Lord. And this horseman, on the other hand, was just trying to prevent conflict as the world sees it. But because the horseman savored the things of this world, he was in conflict with the purpose for which God sent Jehu to Jezreel. So the horseman had two choices, didn't he? He could either get behind Jehu, turn behind him, or suffer the consequences of being a hindrance. So he chose to get behind Jehu. Because the watchman said back in the city about this horseman, he said he went out, but he didn't come back. Now go to verse 19. Now what do you do if your first messenger doesn't come back? You send another one, don't you? (laughs) Then he sent out a second on horseback which came to them and said, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So that is a Bible principle. And from the perspective of King Joram, perhaps the first horseman he sent out was killed or injured, or ran away, or defected to the other side. But the result was the same for the second horseman, as we read there in verse 19. He also came not asking about the right kind of peace. In fact, his words sounded just like the first horseman, who sounded just like the king. So the peace of which he spoke was the same peace of which the first horseman spoke, which was the same peace that King Joram asked about. And the fact that Jehu did not kill both of these horsemen shows us he wasn't just out to make it hard on the people of Jezreel. He wasn't out to wipe out the city of Jezreel. Only the house of Ahab, as the Lord had commanded, very specific group of people, who were going to be taken out. Verse 20, And the watchman told, saying, now he's talking to the king or passing a message on to King Joram, saying, He came even unto them and cometh not again. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he driveth furiously. 
Now two horsemen have gone out, and neither of them have returned. And based upon what this watchman said, Jehu's manner of attack was well known by the watchman of Jezreel. After all, a watchman in a tower has the full-time job of watching people come and go every day, day after day. And he watches them and knows their habits. It's the same principle of a district deputy working a certain district of the county, becoming familiar with it and knowing whose vehicles ought to be in whose garage and which businesses shouldn't have anybody there after 5 o'clock and which ones run all night and, and on and on and on. Becomes familiar with his district. So this watchman was familiar with his watch, with his area and with the people who came through it. It's advantageous to have a watchman who is familiar with the ways of his city's allies and also with their enemies. Need to know what both are. And in fact, such a watchman teaches us a spiritual lesson here. We can't miss it. In several places in the New Testament, we are given the commandment to watch. One such place is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 6. As the Apostle Paul wrote to that church and said, But of the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But ye, brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. He's not talking about physical sleep. But let us watch and be sober. That's the commandment, to watch and be sober. In the Thessalonian passage... The children of the light and the children of darkness may be seen as watchmen. In fact, one is commanded to watch. Now, the other's watching, but they don't know what they're watching for, do they? They don't believe in what God said about what they should be watching for. And using the example of a watchman in the tower, the children of darkness, referred to also as they in that passage, look out from their towers... They see the enemy approaching them, and yet they say, Oh, there's peace and safety when sudden destruction cometh upon them. That's not a very good watchman, is it? I don't want that watchman in the tower. You know there are watchmen like that who stand in the pulpits of churches across the world, and they're just as bad as the they're children of darkness. And that's why they don't know what they're looking for. They don't believe what the Bible says. And then when the day of the Lord comes, 
these children of the darkness, these watchmen, will suffer that swift destruction in their unbelief. They don't have the spiritual discernment that the children of light do, the ye in the verse I just read. We're not in spiritual sleep. We're watching soberly. The watchman in Jezreel's tower did not know the time Jehu would come. He didn't even believe Jehu was coming that day. But when he saw it, he knew his manner. He said, I know who that is. He saw it and he recognized it because he was a sober watchman in the sense of knowing how to do his job in an earthly fashion as a watchman. And although we don't know the time or the season of the day of the Lord, we know the manner in which he will come, don't we? As a thief in the night. That's how. Jehu came driving furiously, the text tells us which means he was leading with madness like a madman. He's, he's coming at us like a madman. That might be a better way to understand that. Now, we who are watching for the Lord don't look out over the earthly plains like the children of darkness do whose spiritual discernment leads them to believe error. We look out differently, don't we? Luke chapter 21, verses 27 through 28. Luke 21, 27 through 28 tells us what to do when that day comes. And then shall they see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Don't look around the earth and say, well, maybe that's Jesus. Oh, the Antichrist will send that delusion to people. Well, go out, that's Jesus out there, and that's Jesus, and here he is over here, but he's not any of those. The Bible tells us he's coming in the clouds. What does a watchman do? He watches, he looks. And the watchman in our text said, the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he driveth furiously. And we will know when Jesus comes by his manner in the clouds as a thief in the night to gather his people to himself. Friend, that is all Bible right there. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible plainly declares. Verse 21. And Joram said, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah went out, each in his chariot. And they went out against Jehu and met him in the portion of Naboth the Jezreelite. Make ready. That word means to bind. In this case, it could be binding one's armor to the body, but in this case it's binding the chariot to the horse. In other words, hitch him up. Saddle up, except a chariot was in view here. And Joram, this king who was sick, he was wounded from a previous battle. And then Ahaziah, the other king, the spiritually weak one, as both were, get into these hopeless chariots. Chariots that were already too late. They weren't even ready, were they? 
the point of no return is already passed for them. Once God prophesied to Elijah that the house of Ahab would be cut off, there was no need for anyone in the house of Ahab to get their chariots ready for a war. And looking in your text there at the end of verse 21, look where they all met. In the portion of Naboth the Jezreelite. The portion of, do you remember this guy, Naboth? Perhaps you do. In 1 Kings chapter 21, a few months ago, we studied that he had a vineyard that King Ahab coveted at that time. And Naboth would not give the vineyard to Ahab. Ahab tried to trick him into it and say, oh, I've got a better place for you. Well, if you do, why don't you just keep that and I'll keep my vineyard. We went through the, the logical fallacies that Ahab used, but for which Naboth didn't fall. So Ahab stuck his bottom lip out and went home and told his wife. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, who's the king around here? Are you the king or not? So she set Naboth up for a fall. She charged him with blasphemy, and she had him stoned to death. And Ahab took Naboth's vineyard, his portion, as a result of that evil plot. So in that day, God told Elijah, the previous prophet, he told Elijah to tell Ahab, the dogs are going to lick up your blood, in this very place that you stole from Naboth. It's going to happen. And he further told Ahab that his house would be like that of Jeroboam's, who were all cut off. And now Joram, the seed of Ahab, is meeting his doom, he's about to, in this very same place. Isn't that something? Of all the places they could have met, they meet right here. Verse 22 and it came to pass when Joram sought Jehu, now he's coming to the same military commander his two horsemen came to, that he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace? Jehu gave him the same answer as he did the horsemen, what peace? But he goes into a little bit more detail here. What peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother, Jezebel, and her witchcrafts are so many. Jehu is saying, there's no peace for Jezebel and because of her. So long as there are two things. One, her whoredoms, where she tried to replace God. God righteously accused the children of Israel of going a-whoring after other gods. And they did that many times. And the second thing that caused no peace here was Jezebel's witchcrafts. That is trying to rebel against God. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. They go hand in hand, by the way. You rebel against God, you've replaced him with somebody. When you replace God, it's rebelling against him. Replacing him, that is, in your own heart. Because there is no other God. The Bible tells us that. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Well, there are fools who have also said in their heart, there are many gods, and there's only one. This verse makes it very clear, in my estimation, that 
Jehu understood the difference between the peace the world gives and the peace the Lord gives. Because of the evil doings of Jezebel and the house of Ahab, Jehu came not to bring peace but a sword. Does that sound familiar? Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 37. Matthew 10, verse 34 through 37. This is what Jesus said. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now you might say, wait a minute now. I thought that Jesus was born into this world to bring peace. And that through faith in him we have peace with God. If you'll read the passage I just read you in its context. You'll see that the peace to which Jesus refers. Is the peace the world offers. Where. Everyone goes to heaven and all religions and views of God are equal and we all hold hands and just embrace each other's faith. But the two verses before what I just read you actually give a better understanding of the context of what Jesus said. You back up in chapter 10 of Matthew to verse 32 and 33. Here's what he said. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now that's a sword right there, isn't it? That's a sword that cuts very cleanly that those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, he's not going to confess them, he's not going to speak on their behalf, but those who have not denied who have trusted him. He speaks on all of our behalf before the Father which is in heaven. He died for all, but when one dies in unbelief, then that person has decided, I want to be on this side of the sword, not on this side. There were two groups of people in that passage, the believers and the unbelievers, to make it very plain. And both cannot have the peace that Jesus is talking about when he says, those who confess me, I'll confess before my Father. And so Jesus said, he didn't come to bring the peace those people wanted who did not believe on him. In fact, he came to bring a sword, which is the word of God. That's what the sword of the Spirit is, according to Ephesians 6.17. Ephesians 6.17 says the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. In fact, Jesus' sword is so sharp that it cuts between earthly relations. If you have an unbelieving mother and her daughter, who is her very best friend, is a believer, that sword cuts right between them. It doesn't say, well, you know what? 
the, the, the daughter's a believer, so we're going to let the mother go in on the daughter's coattails. That's not how that works. That's how sharp that sword is. There's nothing left underneath it. When we think of Jehu bringing the earthly sword to divide the enemies from God's people there in Jezreel. Remember, he wasn't out to kill everybody in Jezreel, just the house of Ahab. The ones who had offended God. It ought to remind us of the sword of the Spirit. Now look in verse 23. We have just a few minutes. Verse 23, And Joram turned his hands and fled, and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. Both Jehu and Ahaziah, now these are kings, turned away. But listen to what Jehu told Ahaziah. I mean Joram, excuse me, Joram told Ahaziah. O Ahaziah, there's treachery. There is treachery. That word is deceit or guile. The righteous judgment of God on the house of Ahab was called treachery. The prince of this world, Satan, has most of the world believing that the righteous judgment of God is treachery. They say, why would a loving God throw people into hell? My question is, why would people rather go to hell than trust in the salvation of a loving God? What more can he do as the song said? He sent his only son to die for sinners. Whosoever believeth in him is not condemned. That's anybody who believes in him is not condemned. What else can he do? Nothing. It's not treachery that the gospel brings its triumph. And with that, we'll close. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for those who attended, who paid attention. And now, Lord, as the Spirit of God takes that truth and, Lord, makes it a part of our being that we may meditate upon it and live by it. Lord, you're glorified in that. And we pray that during the remainder of our worship time today that you would bless us, you'd bless our pastor as he preaches the truth that you've shown him this week. And Lord, the singing and the praying and the fellowship. Father, may Satan be bound that he would not hinder what is going on here today, that he would not turn the hearts of people aside from the spiritual things, those things which are important. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.